Let's go before the Lord and ask Him to illuminate this text for us. Lord, we come before You now. This is Your Word. It is a true Word. It is a gracious Word. It is a Word that rightly builds up Your people, affects in them, Lord, conviction in their hearts and calls them to change and conform themselves to Your image and to not be conformed to the image of this world. Lord, we thank You that we are not at this alone, but rather, Lord, we are keeping in step with what You are already doing in Your people. Lord, would You convict those who even in our midst this morning may not yet know You. Would You draw them to Yourself, Lord? Would You expose the realities of sin and its keeping them from Your goodness and grace? And Lord, would You draw them to greater faith in You? Lord, would You bring those of us who come here with afflicted hearts, hearts that are weighed down, Lord, would this Word be a comfort and an encouragement? And for those of us, Lord, who find ourselves feeling comfortable and finding ourselves not necessarily thinking and reflecting upon what You have called us to, Lord, would You afflict us in our minds that we might once again be drawn to a right and pure relationship with You. Lord, we know that You are able to do all these things. We know that Your Word never returns to You void. It always accomplishes its purposes. So Lord, would it do so even this morning in our midst, we pray. In Jesus' glorious name, Amen. Amen. If you would turn in your Bibles and if you would stand with me as we read our passage for this morning. Reading beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians through verse 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. Now, if you remember last week, we began to look at these verses and we're really going to focus in this week on verses 4 through 6. But I wanted to read the whole section here so that you begin to get a context and the idea that the Spirit of God has been poured out into the hearts of people to unite us to Christ and to enable us to fulfill the calling to which we've been called. In fact, that first statement where it says, Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called really kind of could almost be put up as the great banner over these last three chapters. This is what I urge you to do and this is how you can accomplish that. And he begins to lay out for them what a transformed life looks like. A life of humility. A life of patience. A life of gentleness a life of bearing with one another in love. That This begins to show forth a life that is not found apart from Christ. 
And I think one of the things we really have to think about as we come into this next section, the unity of our confession, is to really ask ourselves, do we really believe wholeheartedly that what Christ is saying through His servant Paul to us is really impossible apart from Him? That Do we really honestly believe that people who are not believers have the capacity to true humility? true gentleness, true patience, can truly bear with one another in love. See, we really do have to come to a place where we believe that these things are only fake. They're only pseudo-patience, pseudo-gentleness. They're not real apart from Christ before we ever really come to a place where we go, that's impossible for people to do. See, as long as we look around and say, well, yeah, they're generally a gentle person by personality, we fail to appreciate the reality that this is not a gentleness of personality. This is a gentleness of character which can only be formed in a person by virtue of being inhabited by the triune God. It is impossible apart from that. See, it's only there that then you begin to go, okay, this is serious business. This isn't about just modifying, as we talked about last week, how I act and behave. This is about what really defines the depths and the core of my inner being. This begins to get down into the roots of what defines me. And maybe it even starts to expose what I'm pouring my roots into. Is it really the things of the Lord? Or am I confusing and deluding myself? See, what the Lord desires most from His people is faith and repentance. You can do a lot of stuff, but if it's done for the wrong reasons, it's worthless. It's no good. You've done a bunch of stuff. If you don't get the starting point correct, you're in big trouble. And if you don't understand that this is supernatural stuff going on, you're never going to be able to really do it and focus on it the way it needs to be focused on. So what Paul is really saying here is this. The Gospel calls me out of a way of life which is normative for all human beings into a transformed life which is impossible apart from the work of God in those human beings. Impossible. I'm going to sound like some of my friends in the African-American church. I want you just to say impossible. Everybody, impossible. Are you with me? It's impossible. I really want us to believe that. Apart from Christ, it is impossible to live for Him. And unless we really get that into the ebb of how we think about the Christian life, we are going to fail over and over and over again because we're never going to seek our strength outside of ourselves. We're never going to look into the heavenlies where Paul tells us in Colossians, put your face up into the heavenlies where Christ is seated at the right hand because that's your hope. Okay, 
So I want us to begin to think about the fact that that's what Paul is calling us to. He's calling us and urging us to walk in a manner worthy of the Gospel, which is impossible. He's exhorting us to maintain a unity that we cannot create for ourselves. We cannot create the unity which the Spirit creates. We are called to maintain it, but we cannot create it. Again, it's something that is beyond, outside of ourselves. And this unity is is all because we have been brought into a union with Christ who is the fountainhead of our peace with God, the created order and the new humanity. Paul now turns and shows us that the unity is motivated not for unity's sake. It's kind of like having faith in faith. It doesn't do you a lot of good. Having unity for unity's sake doesn't help us. We're all unified. For what? And it is amazing to me to listen to a lot of people talk about we just need to come together and be unified. This is both inside the church, the Christian community at large, and outside of it. There's all this talk of unity. Unity for what? And maybe the better question is unity because of what? And oftentimes, we're not really sure about this. And sometimes, as we've talked about in the past, we get so wrapped up and we really want to so narrowly define what unifies us that I think we go too far. We go beyond what Scripture says unifies us. But we also want to be careful that we don't go to the other side where we basically say, well, you know, if Jesus is someone you like, well, that's good enough for us. Well, what do you mean by that? I mean, could you give me a little more definition? Could you kind of fill it out? 66 books of the Bible seem to fill out a little more than just Jesus is just all right with me, as the Doobie Brothers once said. It seems to have a little more than that to be said about it. And so what Paul begins to do then is he says, look, there are things which unite us. And these things are rooted in the very character and actions of the triune God. In fact, that's what he's been doing throughout the first three chapters. He's saying, do you see the triune God? Do you see all that He's done? Do you see how He has been at work in time and space to redeem a people and to unite them together? People who are representative of a variety of ethnicities. Uniting them into one people of God. And so we see that Paul here begins to use seven ones to describe the theological unity that motivates us and holds us together as one. Now I just want to say this to you and you just think about this. Do you think it's a coincidence that seven is the perfect number in the Scriptures? And that Paul list seven ones that unite us. Coincidence? I think not. I think what Paul's trying to say here is not that this is everything you could possibly say about our unity, but rather that if you believe and hold these things to be true, you can rest assured that you are on the right foundation to belief and unity that the Spirit is drawing God's people to. So I want us to begin to look at this then and say that this is the unity of our confession. 
If you go back with me, if you have your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 2, I want to read verses 14 through 18 to remind us of what Paul has already said and then see how that's playing into this passage. He says this, For He Himself, that is Christ, is our peace, who has made us both one, that is Jews and Gentiles, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man. One body in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now notice that this confession basically can be seen around the three persons of the Godhead. One spirit, one Lord, which is the code word, if you will, for Jesus throughout the New Testament, and one God and Father of us all. And there we see that Paul's intentions back in chapter 2 were to say, look, the Trinity has been at work to bring about a new people, one people of God. And so notice what Paul then says. There is one body. Whose body? Christ's body, with Christ Jesus Himself being the head of that body. But it's one Therefore, we need to see that since Christ only has one body, that we ought to be really careful how we treat that one body. Now, I think it's really important for us to understand that we are members of one another. 1 Corinthians makes it very clear that some of us are eyes and some of us are ears and some of us are mouths and some of us are hands and some of us are feet. And then we need all of those kinds of people in our midst in order to accomplish the things that God has for us. One of the things we need to understand then is if we're all members of one another, then we need to care for one another. We need to watch over one another. It needs to matter to us how the rest of the body is doing. One of the things you'll note in the life of God's people is this. If you have... A part of you, my grandfather suffered from diabetes, and one of the things that for those who have that, especially as you get older, that becomes a very real reality is, is that parts of your body can stop getting blood flow and you don't necessarily know it. And eventually that part of your body will just start to rot. You have to watch over your body and be aware of it. And there's a point that I want us to notice that we need to take care of what's happening in the lives of our body, of which this is a part of it. It's not the only manifestation of it, but we are as a church here collectively members of one another. We were united to Christ to be in union with Him and one another. And I want you to think about this. This is part of what it means when Paul says, do we not all eat of the one loaf and drink of the one cup? See, there's a real sense in when we, when we are careless about the body of Christ, not that we look to the front of this table and go, oh, I, I understand what that bread represents and I understand what that wine represents. I, I've got that and that matters to me. Well, it doesn't really matter to you if the people around you which are reflected in that one loaf don't. If they're irrelevant to you, if you don't really care what's happening to them, you are actually not rightly understanding the body of Christ. One body united together by Christ. 
The second thing I want us to look at then is the one Spirit. Not only does Christ just have one body, but He only has one Spirit and He unites us together with that one Spirit. We've already heard up here that He gives us access. Verse 18 of chapter 2, for through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So that what we see the one Spirit doing in us is uniting us together and giving us access to God. The Spirit indwells us then. That's what Paul has prayed, that the Spirit would come and indwell us, would live within us and strengthen us in the inner person. If we note then in chapter 2, verse 22, it says, "...in Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." It is by the Holy Spirit, that one Spirit, that we actually are indwelt by God. Think about this again. Each one of us is a repository, if you will, of God. This is why Jesus can make statements like, if you do this to the least of my brothers, you've done it to me. You see, where the Spirit of Christ dwells, there Christ dwells. And when we see the body of Christ as indifferent, we actually are seeing the Spirit indifferently. We really need to think about what we're confessing here as we think about unity. We are united to one another by a Spirit who indwells all of us. Each one of us has Christ dwelling with us through the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12.13 says, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one Spirit. So as we come together, one of the things we confess and remind ourselves is not only are we one body, but that one body is made one body by one Spirit. Which then draws us to Paul, then draws us to one hope. And look at what he says here in this confession. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Christ has only one destiny for His people. One destiny. And that is the destiny that was always there. And that is that He desires to make us into the full image of Himself, to be consummated, that we will dwell with Him forever with new souls and bodies completely and totally transformed to be like Christ presently is in His resurrected body. The Scriptures basically bring us this idea of this one hope. It is this notion that we were once lost and dead in our trespasses and sins, and that God, through His Gospel, has sent forth His Son to save and redeem humanity, to draw us out of that pit of despair that we were in, to redeem us from our status as treason, as treasonous, as criminals. And what we see then is that this hope then brings us into a relationship with the God of the universe so that we are not condemned. And it's important again as we think about this that what Paul is saying here is is that you have hope because of what Christ has done. He's united you to Himself. This one hope then also reminds us that our calling is rooted in in the one hope of consummating glory. We have a hope for heaven And this is what I want you to see that Paul is saying as he links us back to verse 1 where he's urged us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling to which you have been called. Here he says, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. The idea is this. Heaven is not a place that we comprehend. It's not the normal way we live. 
we are in a struggle between the heavenly realities and the way God and all those who live and dwell among Him right now live and the way of this world which is in angst and is at war with God. And we need to understand that one of the things that Paul is urging us to do is say this, if heaven really is your goal, if being with God forever really is your desire, then your desires need to begin to live in concert with how you act, how you behave, how you operate. Getting fit for heaven is the way the old Puritans used to say. We're supposed to be looking to get ourselves fit for that which God has called us to. This one hope of heaven. This one hope of glory. And so what compels us to live, the gospel of grace comes in, and as Titus says, the grace of God has come into our presence and taught us to say no to ungodliness. Why? Because that does not lead us to heaven. That does not fit us for heaven. And so what we want a church to look like, men and women, is a place where when people come in among us, they go, I'm tasting something not of this world. I'm feeling something not of this world. That doesn't mean we're really cold and we talk in a language that none of them understand. It means that when they walk in among us, they go, there is a presence of the reality of the Holy One here. And I just want to say this to you just in all trueness. The frozen chosen are going to get really happy when they get to heaven. They won't be frozen anymore because it's impossible to be in the presence of God and not be happy and joyful. Does that mean all your circumstances are that way? No. But if we're getting ready for heaven, if we're getting fit for heaven, what are we supposed to operate like? Are we supposed to operate? Well, you know, it's a hard life. It's, it's really hard. You know, it's really terrible. I think we have to be honest. We have to say life is hard. We have to be honest with pain and hurts. We certainly are going to mourn in this life. But if that's the captivating reality when people are around us, we are just down in the mouth, downtrodden. It's always something bad, always something problematic. There's something wrong with us. We know the God of heaven. He has set us free from the bondage of sin and death. Our destiny, our hope is glory. Why so down in the mouth? Isn't that what the psalmist... Why are you so downcast, O oh my soul? He's rebuking himself. Why? There's no reason for this. Ultimately, this pain is short-lived. The glories of heaven are vastly greater. And see, one of the things we need to come and understand in our unity is when we're down, we need to come alongside one another and remind one another of what yet awaits us. Not to trivialize our hurts. Not to somehow make our pains like they're not really there. They are there. But we are supposed to encourage one another to build one another up with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Not necessarily commiserating and say, boy, it really does stink. I'll just tell you this, and, and maybe you're different from me, but I can assure you of this when I've worked in other jobs and even as a minister, I value talking to people who actually remind me of why I do what I do, not, not commiserating with me with all the difficulties and the pains of what I'm doing. I appreciate ministers who go, you know, Dennis, man, I'm really hurting for you, and I've been right where you are, and I know how difficult these things are right now, but... 
don't forget the good news, the big picture. What are you doing this for? Not for momentary afflictions, but for the glory that awaits. See, Paul says, do this for the one hope that belongs to your call. Let that be the dominating way you think and live. Not with all the issues that might come up along the way. The second thing I want us to look at then, that first one, I don't think I told you my first point if you're taking notes that way. The union of our confession was my first point. The second point then is the Lord of our confession. We have only one King. And that's what Paul is getting at then in this in verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We cannot take marching orders from anyone else. Remember what Jesus says. You can't serve both God and money. You can't do it. And just insert whatever you want to insert in the place of money. You can't serve the King Jesus and anything else. He has to have sway. Which means that every area of your life somehow has to be thought through the lens of what does King Jesus do to that situation. Let's be real here. Scripture doesn't tell me what to do with whether I should buy a Mercedes I'll drive for 20 years or an American-made car, which I'll be lucky if I get it to 10 sometimes. That's just the truth. I have friends of mine that buy Mercedes every 20 years. People always say, those people buying those Mercedes, I'm going, well, he'll be driving it long after you're trading it in for the third time. That's the truth. So God doesn't tell us what to do with our stuff or our money directly. What He does call us to, though, is to say that somehow, if you know King Jesus, stewardship has to speak into your world. Care for stuff has to speak into your world. All these different realities that your life consists of, your vocation, your hobbies, whatever it is, King Jesus has a right to say, Think about me when you're thinking about that. Somehow I have a place and a purpose in that. And if I don't, if it has nothing to do with me or somehow doesn't lead you to serve me better, maybe you ought to leave that alone. Now here's the real kicker for us and what really confounds us when it comes to unity. Some of the things that you should leave alone as individuals are not things we all have to leave alone. They're just things you need to leave alone. Does that make sense what I'm saying to you? Some of you are in sin because every time you drive past that really awesome car lot and see that incredible car, you should never buy that car. Whatever kind of car it is, because you'd be in sin for doing it. Not because there's anything wrong with owning that kind of car, but your whole world is wrapped into that vehicle. Or marrying this type of looking person. Or whatever it is, you fill in the gaps. Working at this prestigious firm. If I could just do that. See, what you really need to say to yourself is, that has become my God. It's what drives me. It's what owns me. It's what really is making and calling me into the life I'm living. And see, this is where the subtlety of sin gets us. Because sometimes those things we're being called into are right things in and of themselves but we're twisted and distorted and perverted in how we're using them and what we think about them and how they are captivating us rather than the one Lord who has called us into His service. Not only has He called us into His service, He bought us with His own blood. We're not our own. We were bought with a price. The precious blood 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 8, 5-6, Paul puts it this way, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So it is there that we have been called out to be unified to one Lord, and He is to be our King and our Master. This then draws us to one faith. Paul looks back then when he says one faith, most specifically to chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, which remind us that we were a helpless people, lost and dead in our, trans- in our trespasses and sins. But Christ, because of God's love, was sent and we were saved by grace. So, what really one faith is looking to is saying there's really one gospel. That's really, you could almost insert when it says one faith, it means this thing you believe in. What is it? It's the Gospel. There's one Gospel. There can't be multiple Gospels. There's not multiple ways to Jesus. Paul says, what to the Galatians? If anyone comes and preaches a different Gospel for you to believe in, let that person be damned. Let that person be sent to hell. There is only one right way to believe, and that is in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ as reflected in the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. His being looked forward to, the reality of His coming, and the fruit which comes from His coming. That is what we have, and it is within that confines that we are called to see and understand that there is only one name under heaven whereby men are saved. What did Paul tell the Philippian jailer? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your whole household. That is the crucial mark. We must believe in the one faith, the one Gospel that has been brought to us, which then is signified by one baptism, which is the initial sign of our being united to the people of God. There is but one baptism for the people of God, and that is a baptism into Christ. Galatians 3.27-29 puts it this way, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Everyone who is baptized receives the same baptism as a mark of sharing the same profession, binding themselves to the same covenant and serving the same Lord for His ordained purpose. What we need to understand is when children or adults are baptized, what we're saying is these people are marked out as part of the covenant of God. And as marked out ones, there are realities which are demonstrated in what they will believe and who they will show loyalty to. One Lord believing in the one Gospel as reflected by that sign and seal of baptism. So in the final confess part of the confession that Paul then draws us to is the God of our confession. He says, One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. One God and Father. The church is one because it is indwelt by one Spirit and because it is owned and governed by one Lord. And this is because it has one God and Father. See, we tend to look at these things and say, oh, well, if it means I've got to do everything that Jesus says, or if it means you know I've got to be connected with all these other people that really bother me, well, I don't really want that. But see, if you don't have those things, then you don't get the benefits of having God as your Father. 
Because if you don't have God as your Father, then you don't get the benefits of having His unifying Spirit and His Son who's paid the way so that you might be unified to Him and experience His blessings. So we see that the Trinitarian reality that's going on here is I need one God and Father to send me the Son so that I might believe the truth about Him and be redeemed and marked out. And I need the Spirit to actually make that realized in my life. Apart from the triune God, I have no hope. It is impossible for me to be right with God. This means that we are cared for and nourished, sustained and upheld by the glorious Father who not only relates to us as Creator towards His creatures, but as Father to His adopted and much beloved children. This union we have is not some unity of opinion. It's not that we've all just agreed that, hey, this is the, the kind of place we'd all like to be a part of. It's not a unity that is rooted in convenience. Well, this place was closer than any of the other places I could have gone and been unified. What's supposed to be is a unity of our faith in all these things that Paul has laid out. That we believe that we are one body. That we believe that there is only one hope that we have in Christ. That we believe there's, it's only accomplished by one Spirit. That we are called to love and, uh, and adore one Lord. So these things begin to play themselves out. This, this is a great statement that all believers have one God, the Father, who is sovereign over all things. And I want you to think about this when it says, who is over all and through all and in all. Think about what that really means for us. God works all things for the good. If God really is the King over everything, then there's nothing that can happen that doesn't ultimately work for the good. If that's really true. See, I think sometimes we don't really capture what Romans 8.28 is telling us. We don't really believe that. Because when bad things happen, what's our first response? Why is this happening to me? Well, the right answer should be for my good. I might not like it. I might not see how the good's going to come out of this. But if this thing is happening to me and I really am God's child, then why is this happening to me? For my good. All things work together for the good of those who love God. So if I don't think these things are working for my good, maybe I need to go back to the starting point. Do I really love God? Well, how does a person really love God? Well, they have to be loved by God. See, we're always left with our attitude saying, I am not okay to continue to think the way I think. It's really okay. We are always being called to change how we think. Our fidelity is always in the balance. Not because our end is in question. If you're in Christ, then He's going to enable you to persevere to the end. But because don't you want to live a life that's in keeping with what He's called us to? That doesn't make any sense to be called out to be part of Christ's people and to do everything you can to live like the devil and the sin which you were saved out of. That's just sheer foolishness. As one person would say, that's basically to have just enough religion to make your life completely miserable. We are called to live as God's people and He actually has the audacity to tell us, if you do it my way, you'll actually be happier than if you keep doing it your way. And our problem is we don't really believe God. We keep are convinced that if we just do this one thing, well, I know it keeps creating this issue, but you know what? We really, are, we really are committed to a Debbie Boone theology in America. 
It feel, it's got to be right because it feels so good. Whatever it is. I mean, this just feels right. How can it be wrong? Yet oftentimes we don't trust the God of the heavens more than we trust our own feelings and our own inclinations. And the point is, that's why we don't really believe that we need to repent. We just continue to press on in our average everyday lives rather than saying, you know, there are things wrong with me. And I need to constantly be brought to a place where I see those things and I'm being able to live and to trust that a good God will not forsake me because He sees what I really am like and He still loves me and is committed to me. In conclusion, then, I want us to think about this. We have been united by the one Spirit into one body which gives us one hope in the one Lord who has brought us into one faith through His Gospel and demonstrated this by the one sign of our baptism so that we might be united to our one God and Father who works all things for our good and His glory. Can there be any... And I want you to just think about this. I want you to leave today thinking about this passage and thinking about what's being said here. This is what we believe Is there anything that you can find lacking here that if you apply these things and just say, I want to be committed to believing these things right here, these seven things, is there anything that you believe can hinder us from being and fulfilling the unity that the Spirit has called us to? See, if we really apply ourselves just in these seven things, if you just really take hold of these things, and then you say, how does this change me and call me and lead me? I have to believe that we cannot fail to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It is the recipe. As we hold these theological truths together and actually see them working out through our lives, we will be doing what God has called us to. Perfectly? Never. Not in this life. But we will see it ebbing forward, making progress. And that's what God has called us to. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.